Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and turn to verse 22. I'm going to read this whole section. We're going to take several weeks to go over this. Uh, this morning, we're just going to do a introduction and, and kind of zoom up about 40,000 feet and go look in the book of Genesis and and kind of settle ourselves. And next week, we're really just going to take this text verse by verse. So in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, God's Word says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, I pray that your word would be our joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the fundamental things I want to think through this morning is how do we approach God in His Word? So as the Word of God comes to us, how do we approach God in His Word. Here's how David did in Psalm 19, verse 7. David said this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Anyone in here need soul reviving? You ever feel like that's what you need? Well, David thought that he would get that in God's perfect Word. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Anyone lacking wisdom? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You know, you think of our culture and 
Depression just seems to be on the rise. Reviving of the soul seems to be in need everywhere. Rejoicing of the heart is what people long for. And David says, I get that in your rules and in your laws. And then he says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. And sweeter also than honey dripping from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. That's how David, on a good day, approached the Word of God. This is going to be rejoicing to my heart. This is going to be reward, reviving of my soul. And when we hear John 3.16, we say, Amen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we say, yes, good news. It revives the soul. But how about when we read verses like verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Or we read about the husband's love that is an authority to be used self-sacrificially, not selfishly. And we tend to love some portions of God's words as though He means good to us in some places and He means harm to us in other places. And the only reason why we struggle like we do, if we're honest, is because so often our hearts are not in line with God's heart. And we ought not be surprised that we battle this because the enemy from the very beginning has been seeking to fundamentally plant one main lie in those who are created in the image of God. And that lie is that God is not good. He can't be trusted. He wants to take advantage of you. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. So that's the way the enemy comes at us. As we read God's words, I don't think there is any more controversial view that Sovereign Grace Church holds than its view on gender roles in our present culture. If you want to be attacked as a believer, go out and publish your view on what you believe about God's plan for marriage. Go publish an article on what biblical femininity is and what bi biblical masculinity is 
And you're going to find yourself in great controversy. My heart breaks as I go buy a coffee in this town. I go to a coffee shop and I see young people who have been taught lies about who they are sexually, about who they are in their gender. Children are being taught this at a very young age, and it seems like our world has lost its conscience, which we know it hasn't because God has given everyone a conscience, but it looks like the conscience of our culture is seared to the point where there's legislation to mutilate the bodies of our little children. In fact, the sexual ethics in our culture today has not just pushed feminism that has transitioned to homosexuality and now pushed the boundaries further to the point of transgenderism, but the next tick in the notch and what the experts, Alfred Kinsey, John Money, those who have influenced the medical field so that our doctors need to be affirming towards children who are questioning their sexuality, the next tick in the line is pedophilia. Because those men, John Money and Alfred Kinsey argued, Alfred Kinsey in 1948, argued that our children before puberty are sexual beings. And he abused over 300, maybe up to 1,000 little children in his research. trying to stimulate orgasms from the youngest four-month-old babies. And these are the heroes, the monuments. These men, Indiana University, you can see Alfred Kinsey. There's a monument to him. He is the father of the sexual revolution that we are seeing in our day and age. And it's become the norm. And the average person that doesn't feel like they're pushing it seems to be okay with it. The church is giving up ground. Most churches already have on this issue as the cultural pressure comes, the fear of being canceled comes. But we must not give up ground because in the text that's before us, 
which speaks of a marriage and speaks of roles within a marriage. The climax of this text says that marriage is meant to point to Christ in the church. Which means that the church gives away the meaning of what a male and a female is. We have given away everything. What hope is there for those who have bought the lie? They've been promised happiness. They've had the surgeries. They've, they've transitioned in their mind. What happens when they get to the end of the road and they realize those who spoke promised happiness to them was actually lying to them? What happens when the church goes right along with the culture? There is no more refuge if we give away the truth. The pressure is real. The pressure is real. Will we give ground is the question. Because where it's headed, right now there's people who say, because of the studies of these gentlemen, they sought to prove that little children are sexual beings before puberty, and therefore, to withhold sex from these children would be to oppress them. That's where it's going. And you say, that could not be true. That is where it's going. That's why people are pushing to get our laws reversed on protecting our children. That might seem shocking to you. Read it. Study it. Because the rebellion against God never ends. People do not want to be under any authority. Wherever there's a line of authority, a boundary line, the human heart wants to press beyond it. So 50 years ago, sex outside of marriage was scandalous. <laughs> Not no more. We pushed past that boundary. Now it's homosexuality. Well, we pressed that boundary. That's gone. Well, now it's, look at this boundary. You're saying I'm bound by my body? i got to press beyond these limits. And the rebellion is ultimately a spiritual rebellion against God. It's a believing the lie that God is not good. And I want to just in overview show you several passages. And I just want to kind of in rapid fire point out a couple uh, things. So look at Colossians 3. These are going to be texts similar to Ephesians 5. And, and after we go through these texts, I want to look at Genesis with you. And here, 
Here's the part that is convicting. The same seed, let's say, of rebellion in a husband's heart from the role that he's been given. Let's say a husband shirks his responsibility to lead. Shirks his role. Or a wife rebels against what God has called her to do in submitting to her husbands. What I'm arguing is the same seed, the same poison seed that ultimately brings about transgenderism is there just in a less offensive form. It's rebellion against the way God has set up these things for us. So while we're tempted to just say how, how evil, what we need to see is how often our hearts press against God. So in Colossians 3, we get kind of a shorter summary. Here's what he says. Wives, submit to your husbands. And here's the key phrase. As is fitting in the Lord. So there's something that's fitting in the Lord in the wives' submission. Then it says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. Look at this phrase. For this pleases the Lord. And then he, the verse that my children will quote to me. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but look at this, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Colossians, this is all in the category of submission and God being glorified in all the different ways, He calls us to submit to the authorities in our lives. Look at 1 Peter 2.13. If you have your Bibles, I'm, I'll wait for you. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter 2.13. Once again, we're just doing a flyover. We just kind of want to get our hands around what this Scripture tells us on this topic. 1 Peter 2, 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake. All right. So, be submissive for the Lord's sake. The Lord is pleased in this. To every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject 
to your own masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. Over and over and over again. Every time the topic of being submissive to an authority that you are put in, we are continually shown that God is pleased with this. That God is pleased in it. That doesn't mean every authority is good. Often, they're not. And then verse 20, For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and you, you endure, this is the, a gracious thing in the sight of God. There it is again. For to this you've been called. You see that? So here's, here's the temptation. As soon as Christians realize that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory and He sits at the right hand of God and He has all authority above all things, in that moment, apart from God giving us these charges, Christians were about to become the most rebellious people on the face of the earth. Because they could always say this, you're not my authority, Christ is. You're not my authority, Christ is. You're not my authority, Christ is. But both Paul and Peter are saying, no. That is not what pleases God. And then look at chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, let your, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Now look at this. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. There it is again. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And then he says, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you, the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I, lo I love God's word. You... Ladies, you might be thinking, how come we get six verses and they get one? Because in that one verse, it encompasses a lot of things. Live with your wives in an understanding way. And it comes with a warning. Because if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. It's as if God's saying, don't come pray to me as you're living with your wife in a harsh way selfish way because your relationship with me runs through how I've called you to treat your wife so all that to say 
and to point out that God seems to really care. God's glory seems to be at stake in this area. Now, if you look at your sheet here, I want to introduce you to the uh, different sides of the issue. So before next week, before we jump in, I just want you to get a handle on uh, two different views in regards to gender roles uh, within marriage or leadership in a church. So complementarianism, uh, I got this off Theopedia on the internet. There's a lot of different definitions you can look up. This is just a simple one. Holds that God has created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood. All right, so get this. Complementarianism does not believe that men are more valuable than women or that men are more capable than women or that God loves men more than women. So often in these with these two views, there's a misunderstanding. Emotions can run so high, there's a failure to listen carefully. So that God has created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood, but different and complementary in function with male headship in the home and in the church. All right? Away, another, uh, uh, Matt Slick describes complementarianism. He says it this way. Complementarianism is the teaching that masculinity and femininity are ordained by God and that men and women are created to complement or complete each other. Complementarians believe that the gender roles found in the Bible are purposeful and meaningful distinctions that when applied in the home and church promote the spiritual health of both men and women. Embracing the divinely ordained roles of men and women furthers the ministry of God's people and allows men and women to reach their God-given potential. So essentially, complementarianism teaches that men and women are equal in essence or in worth or in value. They're both heirs of the grace of life, as, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7. But they're different in roles. Men and women were created by God different. The picture of a dance is probably the best illustration. If two people are dancing, there cannot be two leaders. If there is, the dance will not be beautiful. There needs to be someone leading and someone following. If you have two people following or you have two people leading, what you have is less beautiful than if you had one following and one leading. And the picture is, is that God rooted in creation male and females differently, equal in value and essence, but different in roles. 
egalitarianism, the other view, uh, within Christianity is a movement based on the theological view that not only are all people equal before God in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in a home, the church, and in society. The way Matt Slick says it is egalitarianism teaches that in Christ there are no gender distinctions anymore. This idea comes from Galatians 3.28. We're going to look at that in a moment. Because all believers are one in Christ, egalitarians say, men's and women's roles are interchangeable in church leadership and in the household. Egalitarianism sees gender distinctions as a result of the fall and Christ's redemption as removing those distinctions, bringing unity. So that's key. So the fundamental argument for the egalitarian view, for the view that they're equal in essence and they have interchangeable roles, is that the only distinction in the roles came because of sin. It wasn't by God's design. It was when Adam and Eve sinned that there became distinct roles. And so once a person's a Christian, those role distinctions are to be uh, eliminated. So there can be unity both in roles and in equality. So that's how the argument would go. Complementarianism sees gender distinctions as the result of creation and Christ's redemption as a return to those distinctions. So look at Galatians 3.25. Let's look at the argument from the egalitarian view. So once again, they're using this text to argue that since Christ has redeemed us, is redeeming us from the fall. That was the point of his death. Part of what he meant was to get rid of male and female distinctions. All right? And here's the main text they would point to. But now faith, now that faith has come, so in the context of Galatians, Paul is arguing that the law has functioned um, as a guide until the redemption of Christ has come. And so he says in verse 5 here, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And that would be the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the context is they're sons of God. They're Christians through faith. And then he says, for as many as of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, there's the key, for you are all one in Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So they would say, see, since Christ has come, there's no longer male and female. And we have to understand what Paul is talking about in Galatians and what he's talking about in Ephesians. 
The context in Galatians is there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, male and female, in regards to salvation. They're all the same. Whether you're the master or the slave, you're saved in Christ the same. You see, the issue isn't how does a husband and wife function in uh, the context of a marriage. The context is that we're all one in Christ and we are saved by faith. And the other fundamental thing we would say is, let's go look at Genesis and find out if gender distinctions come before the fall or after the fall. Because when Paul in his letters makes an argument, whether it's in the church or in a marriage, for wives to be submissive to their husbands, or that he doesn't permit women to be pastors in a church, he doesn't argue from a cultural standpoint saying our culture uh, doesn't listen to women. That's why. He argues to the creation order. He goes back to Genesis. And so let's go look at Genesis. Let's begin in Genesis 1. Let's begin in verse 1. In the beginning, God. Let's just stop there. If you believe this, that God existed for all eternity, that there was nothing there except God before creation, then guess who gets to set the order? God does. You see, the first verse of the Bible is one of the most fundamental truths that if we would just orient ourselves to it, in the beginning, God. You don't exist apart from God. This world doesn't exist apart from God. God is the ultimate authority. And God is good. So let's look at verse 26. Let's, let's see as he creates man. And I'll just make a few comments. We're not exhausting this by any means. Verse 26 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So I think this, the Trinity, there's, there's uh, glimpses of the Trinity here. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man is created in the image of God. They're given authority right away. An authority structure is set up on the earth. And man and woman are to have authority over the animals. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This shouldn't be controversial. He was the only one in the beginning. He created them. He decides whether they are male or female. He gets to pick. 
What sort of pride must it take for a creature to look at how God has made them and say, no, you did not make me like this. I will take charge. I will change how you have made me. Verse 28 says, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Here we have the creation mandate. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So have dominion over it. Subdue it. And be fruitful and multiply. Just a question. How are you supposed to fulfill the creation mandate if a person is in a homosexual so-called marriage? You can't fulfill what God has called you to fulfill from the very get-go. Look at Genesis 2.15 as we zoom in on how man and woman were created. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. This is Genesis 2.15. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. God is reminding man that though I've given you authority over this whole earth to subdue it, your authority is not over me. You can't transgress where I say you can't transgress. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. It is not good that man should be alone. God created man and woman back in Genesis 1 and he said on that day it is very good. Not just good, it's very good what he did. Men and women created in the image of God is very good. And now he says it's not good that man should be alone. And I'll make him a helper fit for him. So the one he's going to make is going to be for the man. And the adjective given to describe her role is as a helper. So they are together called on one mission to have dominion. The same goal. The same goal the husband and wife have but as Bodhi Bakum says, if you have two heads, you have a monster. God designed that within any mission, there will be a leadership role. And in verse 19 it says, Now out of the ground God had formed every beast of the field. Now I just point out here, what we'd expect him to say is, I'll make a helper fit for him. So we would expect him to say, and so he created a female. 
And then one of the things uh, Vody points out is not only would we expect verse 18 or verse 19 um, to just say a female was created, and these are the attributes of 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 females, and these are the attributes of male. That's what we would expect, but that's not what he does. It's not what God says here. He says, now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast and every bird of the heavens. Now why is he going back to them? I thought we were talking about a helper. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. So man is exercising dominion as he names the animals. Eve has not been created yet. And Adam is functioning before the fall, naming the animals. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave his names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. All right? This is already an uncomfortable sermon, so let's just continue. Bestiality is destroyed right here, is it not? There was not found a helper fit for him. The animals were not the companions God had for his for Adam. So here's what God did. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So it's from the man she was created, and the, the, the Lord brings her to the man. And there wasn't a helper fit for him. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So while it's true, not every woman and every man will get married. That's true. And it's also true that not every woman can give birth in a fallen world to children. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, right? Women unable to give birth. So, not only... I lost my train of thought here. So... Okay, now I got it. So, it's in the marriage. So while it's true not everyone gets uh, married, the way we learn of biblical manhood and womanhood is from the marriage. The roles within a marriage is how God decided to te teach us what manhood and womanhood is. So it doesn't mean everyone's going to get married. It doesn't mean you're not a woman if you don't get married. And it doesn't mean you're not a man if you don't get married. But it does mean, unless you look at a marriage, 
You can't understand the meaning of manhood and womanhood, and you can't understand the meaning of the gospel as much as you could if you don't look at the marriage. And so what we see in this text is that male headship is seen before the fall and that women were made for men. The woman was made from the man. The woman was brought to the man. And the woman was named by the man. And in Romans 5.12, when God talks about sin coming into the world, He doesn't say that sin came into the world through a woman. He says that sin came into the world through Adam. Where when we read chapter 3, you think what you would say is the sin came into the world through the woman, but God functions through headship. What the woman did was the result of failed leadership of Adam. So sin came into the world through Adam. And then, I see we're running out of time, Genesis 3, as we look at the fall, we know that the serpent comes and deceives Eve. And then she turns to her husband and gives it to her husband and in one sense, deceives her husband. Yes, it's his responsibility. She gives it to her husband. Her husband eats it. And the promise of the serpent is they're going to become like God. And in Adam giving up this authority God has given him and not believing that God is good, wanting God's position, Adam stands in rebellion to God. So that we see the creation order reversed in the fall. Here's what God did. God created mankind. He said they're to have dominion over what? The birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So here comes a beast. So here's what we have. We have God. We have man. We have woman. We have beast in the authority structure at the beginning of Genesis. Satan comes, the beast comes from the bottom up, deceives the woman. The woman gives to the man, and the man rebels against God. You see it reversed. And the question is this. In reversing it, did good come to the world? What did we see following Genesis 3? As we see God's order reversed, did we see life and flourishing come? Or did we see destruction and pain and dissension? And the real issue, when we approach this text next week, needs to be, do I believe God is good? And do I come before this book humbly saying, whatever it says, I'll get under it. Because God is good. He knows what's best. He knows what brings about flourishing in life. And most importantly, I want to do whatever is fitting in the Lord's mind. I want to do whatever brings glory to God in sight of the Lord. Because this is how faith is described. We're going to conclude with this. Hebrews 11.6 says this. 
And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So the writer of Hebrews says you can't please God apart from faith. And then he describes saving faith like this. He says saving faith is believing that God exists. That's the first part of it. And secondly, that he's a rewarder to those who seek him. That's what pleases God. There's all sorts of people that say, I know what God says, and I don't like it. I like some parts. I don't like other parts. I know what he says, and I don't like it. That's not faith. Faith is believing that whatever God says is good. He's a reward to those who seek him. And by the way, Ephesians 5 is in the context of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we're told from the very beginning of the letter that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in the person of Christ. He doesn't lead off with Ephesians 5. He leads off with jaw-dropping awe of God's grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So let's lean in the next few weeks as, if we're honest, we'll be challenged. And let the goal of our leaning in to be to the glory of God, to the pleasing of God. Father, we thank You for your word. Father, we thank you that in the midst of a culture that has seemed to lose its mind in regards to things that are not only spiritually obvious, but just scientifically obvious. Father, this is where we see the spiritual deception. So much harm being done. So few Christians standing up and speaking because it's embarrassing to talk about these things or we might be canceled by a culture that laughs at these things. 